Hello, language and culture lovers. This is Jules, your host of the All Things Iceland podcast. Welcome to this week's episode, which is part two of a two-part interview that I did with Andre Snyd Magnusson. If you have not listened to part one yet, I highly recommend that you do, even though you can listen to this first and go back and listen to that one. But I think it's really fascinating to hear about Andre's story in regards to how he became interested in literature and his very successful career in Iceland, as well as some of the really fascinating stories that he has to tell. And just his imagination in general in, and thoughts are pretty fun to listen to during the interview. I know I had a great time just learning more about him. So hopefully you do as well. We start off this interview, though, talking about Reykjavik being a UNESCO city of literature. Andri is a great person to talk about this because he is the chairman of the board for the Reykjavik UNESCO City of Literature. He provides some great insight into the current literature landscape in Iceland and the impact of literature from this country on the world. Andri also shares his favorite pieces of Icelandic literature, his environmental advocacy work that he's doing here, what it was like for him to run to try to become the president of Iceland, and of course, his favorite Icelandic word or phrase. I hope you enjoy listening to this interview just as much as I enjoyed conducting it. So Reykjavik has been designated as a UNESCO City of Literature, and it's the first non-native English-speaking city to receive that title. What is it about Reykjavik, or at least Icelandic literature, that made it worthy of this prestigious title? I do think that we deserve it because we have, like I said, uh, we have the poetic Edda here. Mm -hmm. We have the Nordic mythology. And for the world to have preserved, you know, the humans have left, you know, after their 100,000 years of wandering around the planet, maybe 10 mythologies that are kind of intact Mm-hmm. And then lots of fragments and lots of folklore and, you know, endless volumes of things. But right. but maybe ten big, you know, mythologies. You right. know, the, the Greek, the Christian, the uh, the Aztec, the Mayan, you know, like some Indian mythology right. or North American native mythology, Hindu, Chinese, you know, right. but, but it's not endless. That is right, you know, yeah. the, 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 the bulk of the real mythology that has been preserved is... You could say generalizing in like 10, 15 big mythologies. Mm-hmm. And we have one of them here. Mm-hmm. And it's in Reykjavik. It's not currently on display. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the, and then we have the medieval manuscripts. Okay. And, and it is in a language that we still speak here. Right. Which is yeah. pretty fascinating, I think, yeah. to everybody. Yeah. And actually, I thought it was fascinating myself when I first encountered the manuscript. Yeah. And I could just, I could just read it. Yeah. And uh, without having any pre-knowledge of how to... But still the language is, maybe it's different than how it's colloquially said. I mean, granted, you almost written text is different, but then that, but like just in terms of, is it like reading, if you were in English, reading Shakespeare, that type it of... It might thing? be a bit, but even not so. Uh, there are some archaic words. Okay. And some uh, archaic ways of describing and, and some rules in poetry also that are alien to us because they, they're very based on Nordic mythology and it's difficult for a layman to navigate. Mm-hmm. But basically most of it, 
of the sagas, for example, is in a very basic language. And actually, sometimes when it's translated to other languages, yeah. it becomes a bit overwhel- underwhelming because it's like <laughs> Gunnar was a man. <laughs> he was big and strong. He sailed to Norway. Yeah. <laughs> and for us, it's like this... this uh, epic tale. Uh, epic tale. But, but, but if you but read it, like, maybe with like, but, you know, a Viking-type accent, like really deep bass, but Gunnar was a man, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah but, but it's, like, it's, it's just like really straight to the point. Yeah. It's not like he was dazzling with emotions or something. Right, yeah. something. Which would but, be... The but, it, but it's very good storytelling. Okay. And... Uh, and the best of the sagas are really good storytelling. Yeah. And and even today, you're like reading it and it's like, wow, this is good storytelling. Yeah. Like when they start something, c- come in with a new chapter, yeah. spice it a bit <laughs> with, with memories of the other. Yeah. And, then and drama, bang, right? You it's know, it's like, and it's beautifully done. And I remember reading like Njal's saga, which mm-hmm. is one of the best. And I, I got goosebumps and really? I don't get them so often. I was like, wow, this is good. You know, like... You're going through a sequence and suddenly come like three pictures, like, dying, dying, dying. And I was like, wow, that's like, that's like good storytelling. Yeah, so, so we have this, the sagas, we have the, uh, the mythology, we have the, the stories of the Scandinavian kings mm-hmm. and all that stuff. We have then endless volumes of, of, of folklore. And, and myths and hymns and stuff from the from the Middle Ages. And then we have a very rich romantic period yeah. uh, of poetry. And then the 20th century is a very rich period from romantic to modernist poetry. Right, yeah. And then we have uh, kind of the rise of the novelist, like the big Icelandic novel mm-hmm. uh, that comes with Haldor Laxness. Yeah. And he won the Nobel Prize. Yeah. So that I did kind an of episode, a podcast episode about him because yeah. there is, you know, so that impact. that kind of frames uh, the reason why we should be a UNESCO city of literature. I, I'm not doubting. I'm no, just, no, no, no. Just want to hear from <laughs> and, your and perspective. I, and I'm not bragging it. <laughs> I'm just <laughs> saying it. But you're proud. It, but it's sure. a fact. No, yeah. I'm, I'm cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm cool. <laughs> so, 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 so you know, so it's very rare that you have the Edda. Yeah. And you have laxness and you have bonus poetry in the same suit. <laughs> I love how you put yourself in there. Bonus poetry for the win. <laughs> no, I was just kidding. But, and then we have a, a quite good contemporary literary scene. Okay. That, uh, and poets that are active and writing and alive and doing right. stuff. And then places in the city where people can go and see some of these artifacts. Yeah, there should be the museum of of mythology and yeah. sagas, uh, which is a big hole now uh, on the university campus. Yeah. There is a uh, saga museum down in Grandi area. Yeah, that's not... But the, it's not, not like, yeah, it's, it's like, more like... You know, it's as the Smithsonian... Yeah, like, okay, as, as fair the, enough. Yeah. As, as the primal real object museum, mm-hmm. it's not here. Yeah. So is uh, that something in the works? I made a report about 20 years ago for the Minister of Culture at that time telling him that of all the man-made things in Iceland the Codex Regius has the biggest cultural footprint Mm. of everything uh, in elementary mass so so it's it's like a it's like a well of 
of inspiration. So yeah. you have like contemporary dance, you have nature loving parties, like like uh, political parties. You yeah. The Nazis were using it. You have Marvel comics. You have Tolkien. You so have it's impact. Uh, you 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 know it's just it's just huge cultural impact. You right. have. Norwegian death metal bands, you know, <laughs> yes. and you have yeah. uh, French uh, contemporary dancing out Loki or yeah. or something, or the uh, struggle of Freya, or you know. Yeah. So okay, Mona Lisa, she's nice, but she's but, nice. <laughs> but <laughs> she, she looks lovely in <laughs> she that looks, painting. <laughs> she looks. It's a good selfie but, <laughs> by Leonardo, but. Uh, but uh, it's she's not doing anything, mm. you know. She, it's not like Marvel comics is. Mona Lisa and Hulk are <laughs> fighting the <laughs> the big bad wolf, you know. So it's like, and Tolkien wasn't using her, or you know, it's it's a it's a cultural reference and maybe right. sometimes a joke, but she does not have the the footprint right. of this. And this is I say without bragging, of mm-hmm. course. It's just science. But good marketing. Good marketing. In terms of the Mona Lisa, yes, right? yes, in, in, yeah. in comparison, yeah. right? There's and, this... and, and then then I was then I was thinking actually after I finished this report. I was thinking, why do I want something like this? Do I want to have a museum mm. with a whole line, and and instead of the puffin stores down, <laughs> uh, they would call be called the Atta stores or something? Yeah. So so uh, then I was thinking, and that's also an inspiration for Lobster, was this kind of do, do things become better if they become popular? That big. is a good question. Yes and no, depending on what angle yeah. you're looking from, right? Yeah. It's like if you just want people to recognize and make sure that this work yeah. of art gets its due yeah. for it, you know, it being so important and impactful. But then, yeah, like you said, yeah. then it, it somewhat become, becomes some mass machine. Yeah, yeah, and it's, yeah you stop and losing. It, it, it starts it, losing yeah. its uniqueness. Yeah, it, it can, yeah. So, and, and I was thinking, <clears throat> will it be that I will remember my years of being alone with. Uh, the Codex Regius is something almost medieval when there'll be guards and lots of glass and steel. And, and people can't vaults. see it now, right? At the moment, it's not no, on display. No, not today. Okay. But so, it would be, I think, nice if historians well, at least well, could... I, I do think, actually, it should be on display. Yeah. Like the Book of Kells. Yeah. And I think it's actually... The Book of Kells is in Dublin. Mm-hmm. And it's one of the most valuable manuscripts in Europe. But it's beautiful, but the content of it is not does not have a footprint of mm. the other okay. because it has the biblical tales and they are of course you know everywhere so okay. so the text source itself is not but it's just it's as unique it's, it's just it's age and it's beauty okay and what makes the literary culture in iceland so strong so obviously you have this base but as people in iceland have evolved there's still a decently strong literary culture here so what has kept it going yeah, I think it's it's of course has something to do with the language. That is, it's a it's a kind of a self feeding process. That is, mm. we have the language, which means that all ideas have to be imported mm-hmm. into the language. <laughs> okay. So somebody has to be a host for the idea. So if we are going to be communists or uh, or capitalists or or you know or uh, feminists or you know whatever idea that we want to bring in right somebody has to carry that disease that, <laughs> disease. that, that, that virus <laughs> right yeah you know, and spread it that's true, and yeah. spread it yeah. and that that it doesn't happen directly from from like a you know in in some ways it happens from you know foreign texts that right. that we read and inspire but 
but mostly it happens through translating and then implementing that text into a society and putting that into context. And this bubble, I think, is interesting. This illusion that Iceland is a universe, Mm -hmm. that succeeding here within a frame of 300,000 people is something of a huge accomplishment. <laughs> like, like, it's like being big in Brooklyn. Or right. <laughs> Which is hard to do now. It's hard to do now, yeah. yeah. And it also creates like a, a capital of the language. That is, mm. if we spoke English or Danish or, uh, or German or whatever, right. then our talent would be like instantly sucked to the capital of the language. Right, that's true. And, and, and we would be a periphery. We would be a, like an outpost. But because the language has its capital here right. and, and these deep, deep roots in, in history, and you, we can actually become quite self-absorbed because mm. the, the history of the language is so deep. Yeah. And then all the, the stories that you haven't read are so many, right. you know, of, of the production of the 20th century. And, and even every year you can't really follow everything. Yeah, the book flood, for instance, yeah, the yeah. amount of books published is intense here yeah, it's quite a lot so you can actually per capita yeah, per capita. <laughs> you can actually be quite drenched within yeah. this language okay. and and which also can be a bit bad because you have to read from abroad to you know have a dialogue with the world right but we have been having good translations into the language that have been feeding you know, magical realism and socialism, right. social realism and surrealism. And, you know, so the big trends of the world have been kind of translated into Icelandic. Yeah. And then I think it's also interesting that since not very many people speak Icelandic, there's something special about that in general, right? So like if you kind of get your, you know, ability to speak the language and understand the language, you're now getting an insight into the culture when yeah. you're reading these, reading these literary works before they've been translated, because yeah. that can lose yeah. the feeling, right, of like yeah. the people and the land. And you you how can they follow much better now, kind of what we are thinking, yeah. than, than <laughs> maybe 30 years ago. Yeah. And uh, then we have this longing for novelty. That is, mm. that is, we did not define an Icelandic story as like this. Okay. You know, this is how to write an Icelandic. So, so there is a tolerance for experiments and the avant-garde, and and right. and that has been feeding in and I think what makes many of the novelists special mm-hmm. is that poetry and the novel has always been very close. Okay. So so the novelists have often been poets as well. And and that creates a different approach to language. Yeah. And also the other visual arts and novelists have also been quite close. Okay. So like Hallgrimur Helgason. Yeah. He's been published now in English. He's a great visual artist as well, and and and, but he's a master of words, right, right. and I, you would think some of his work would be untranslatable. So, mm. but, but so kind of the margin between genres that is or art fields that is, visual arts, poetry, mm-hmm. maybe music or film or other, it kind of a. Uh, it's it's not so thick that is mm. the the wall you know it's not like there are one hundred novelists until you know the visual artist yeah okay you know, so, so, <laughs> yeah. so the artist community can be circulating yeah okay like uh, a loop looping in and out of each yeah and and I th- I was just reading uh, books from the eighties and I was starting to see the eighties when kind of Sean was coming in mm-hmm. 
Steinun Sigurðardóttir uh, Einar Már all these, po- all these writers are also excellent poets yeah. and, and, and you could just see it in the text it would sometimes their approach to the language and conceptual approach is different from the kind of more generic novel yeah. which you know the, the novelist that is making his thick chunk of, <laughs> of books every right. other year you know Okay. Yeah. And so where do you see, I guess, the literary culture going? Like it's, so you're saying like there's so, people are so open to like being novel and experimenting. So is it kind of on the cusp of something or is it just like literally everything is open for possibility? It's, it's difficult to see like any common trend now. Yeah. It's like everything is going on simultaneously. So we have some young good poets coming up mm-hmm. and, and writers uh, not many that have yet broken through kind of into the the psyche mm-hmm. you know okay. like uh, the national psyche we have a very big generation that is kind of on maybe the upper end of their career you know in their six, late 60s yeah. which was kind of the generation that has kind of dominated the last 30 years maybe okay and uh, and have been you know and so it will be interesting to see like who will carry the torch mm. also maybe just to see the effect of how increased translations do they change how you approach your language and your identity right. and uh, i haven't seen many bad examples of of like almost culturally appropriating yourself <laughs> so like the, okay you know because you can say something in english that sounds like wow, yeah. wow! Is he? Uh, was, was? Did she see an elf queen in the cliff? You know, like. But but you read it in Icelandic, it's like oh, it's like the most common folklore or something. Yeah, that, okay. You know, so like you know, I haven't seen that yet. Okay. But. Uh, but you never know. You never know. <laughs> but I think you're talking about some of the poets haven't really affected the psyche of the current like generation of people or generations of people living in Iceland. Yeah. But your book, Dreamland, yeah. did help to evolve or at least raise consciousness about environmentalism in Iceland. Yes. Right? And that, I think, is a very powerful thing to be able to do. And do you think that there's a place that's for writers and their ability to influence their con- fellow country people, you know, fellow Icelandic yeah. people... Because this is a place where a lot of people like to read and kind of, you know, be able to self-publish and just kind of tap into what others are thinking. Yeah, I was kind of both surprised, but also, yeah, I wasn't sure what to expect when when Dreamland came out. I was ready for being really, what do you say, uh, disappointed. Mm, Yeah, because, you know, selling a 600 copies or something, and Mm. you know, but it, it, it created a huge kind of uh, tornado thing. And it sold uh, about 23,000 copies wow, here in Iceland. Nice. And people were calling me. And so Iceland at that time was kind of, there was some Trumpish, you know, we didn't, it, not as bad as Trump, but right. there was some Trumpish elements going okay. on. That's scary. Yeah, you know, they were, we had a very strong leader and officials that were of governmental agencies they didn't dare to speak up 
or the, he would cut the fence and you wow. know like you know so yeah. so it was kind of mini tyranny without like s- severe attacks or something but yeah. but the attacks on the highlands were were quite were quite brutal and nature what do you call them biologists or uh, people that should have been speaking out mm-hmm. about what was happening. A different scientists, I guess. Yeah. Scientists were being uh, pressed. And we used to see that in the States now where they say that individual scientists should not speak. They should just speak through the PR of the agency. That was that was happening wow. in Iceland. Okay. And I felt, okay, if, if this scientist that has a PhD in... in, in uh, educated by the nation and right. suddenly being silenced... Right. Then it is my my role, and if he's being threatened by his job and things like that, then it is my core role as a writer in this time, mm-hmm. at this moment, to step into that situation right. and then speak what he was going to speak. Would like to say. What, what he what would like to say. Yeah. But also, I saw that the writer had a different position. Mm-hmm. A journalist is allowed to talk like a journalist, you know, like, right. you know, facts and yeah, yeah typical journalism text. <laughs> right. Uh, a uh, economist is allowed to talk like an economist, a biologist like a bi- biologist, and everybody has their way of yeah. being In allowed box, to speak. Yeah. yeah, and they are all afraid of going into the field of the other scientists. Okay. So everything becomes so fragmented, and almost nobody is able to take. The language of this and this and this and this, and create a whole narrative out mm-hmm. of that. Right. So, I would be taking lots of technical things. I was reading like engineering reports, like <laughs> like like uh, like they were crime novels. Okay. Like, oh my god! Oh. And and I and 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 the chapter that I was thought would be most difficult to write. Which was about the terawatts. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, so you know, like imagine, imagine that that was the the chapter with the greatest suspense, okay. the chapter about the terawatts. That was the most exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so taking something like a terawatt that nobody understands, mm-hmm. and changing that into a like almost like a detective story, mm. of of revealing, kind of schemes of destroying. Yeah. Vast, beautiful nature yeah. that is hidden within maybe just the word five terawatts mm. or thirty terawatts. And uh, just to people, give some, people became yeah. really furious. Some context around this, right? So, like, yeah. obviously, you're talking about. So, the... basically, talking about the rivers of Iceland. Right. So, we have something that is called nature. Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> and, and to some uh, New Yorkers, they will not know what you're talking about. But no, <laughs> so, we have. No, but, but the engineers call that. Still untapped resources. Ooh. So I was not referring to New Yorkers. Okay. Was, uh, the, <laughs> I'm not so rude. <laughs> <laughs> so so uh, still untapped resources. Yeah. And they were saying that we had 30 terawatt hours of, mm. of underdeveloped <laughs> economic, potentially harnessable okay. hydropower. Mm-hmm. And then nobody confronted that. So it was just repeated and repeated and repeated. Yeah. And it was in international brochures. Here in Iceland, we had 30 terawatt hours for sale. And and then when I just came almost like a child and I just asked a stupid question, yeah. I'm sorry, sir, I don't understand. Uh, and I just did the two plus twos. Okay, this river is one terawatt. Ooh. The other is 0.7. The other is two. The other is four. And when I counted and added up the rivers, 
they had promised that we could harness a little bit more than all of the rivers in Iceland, <laughs> just a little bit more, and Gullfoss included, which is kind of the national, the national pride of Iceland right, yeah. or the biggest tourist attraction of Iceland. Exactly. So they had spared nothing. They had, and they were sending these brochures to corporations abroad that had That's a brutal intense. history, right. like a terrible history We're from abusing, abusing people and nature oh. in South America, in Africa, in Australia, in America, you know, just everywhere. They had like the most disgusting background and I was just, I was furious. How you're close taking, was this going to come to go to actually happen? This was just on full force. Wow. This was on full force, brutally on full force. And uh, and countless beautiful areas yeah. that were just majestic, just holy, basically holy, <laughs> holy ground. You know, right. just so fragile that you people took their shoes off to walk. You know, right. because it was so delicate towards you know people and uh, the greatest nesting place of pink-footed geese in right. the world. You yeah. know, like places where you shouldn't be. You know, and they were all like, have you been there? <laughs> I was like, I don't think I have to be there. It's right. a nesting place of pink-footed geese. It's, it's not, it's not like, for me. Right? It's <laughs> not for me. Some places, it's not, nature is not about ratings. Right. You know, it's not like my mm -hmm. ogling towards nature creates the value. Right. You know, the value exists there and I can just read a book or something. Yeah, it, and I think it, that's such a deep, deep concept that people forget so much because they want to see and capture everything on their phone or yeah, whatever exactly, else. Yeah, and yeah, it's just yeah. like, sometimes you got to let it be. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I had this concept of, there was a, was a place that, and I used that as an argument. I said, okay, because that it was like scientifically known that this place, Thjörsárver, mm -hmm. was fragile. And, uh, and and it was the greatest nesting place. And, and they were going to put in a, a reservoir that was, probably bigger than Manhattan or something right. into the heart of that area and 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 I was and they were asking and they were always using this against the other areas but there's nobody there like the places were unpopular so right. instead of yeah. instead of being untouched they were, they were <laughs> is the argument is unpopular <laughs> yes oh, it must be so unpopular no one's gonna miss it no, nobody's <laughs> there nobody's gonna miss it nobody knows about it wow and 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 they were actually accusing us of of messing up with people because nobody knew about it and suddenly everybody knows about it and now nobody wants it to be harnessed. Right. And then they were treating us as children, like, if you don't do this, then there will be no economic growth for you and you won't be able to sell any books, little baby, wow. you know, little baby boy. And people actually believed that or people would ask, okay, so you're against electricity. Oh. Where does the energy from your light bulb come from? So I had to so that the problem was so deep mm -hmm. that I actually could not mention the word aluminum or the issue until page 200. What? <laughs> so so okay. up to page 200, I had to tell stories, recreate, create metaphors, yeah. mess with people's minds, talk about ideas, where ideas come from, right. alternative Icelands, how we sense reality, how we become addicted to industries, why the Egyptians built three pyramids, um, because you can't build one pyramid. If you have 40,000 people building a pyramid for 40 years, 
you, you, you can't stop doing that. It's an industry now. It's an industry. That's what people do. You know, it's like it's not like everybody's cheering if you close down a car factory or something. Yeah. So, so people's addictive uh, imagination, how we sense industries and stuff. So yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So it it had to go to the roots of creativity and language and alternative histories and what would have happened if we always if we had said yes to five military bases from the US and they would have employed 50,000 people right. you know then we would have said oh this saved us if this had not happened we would be like a really poor nation mm-hmm. so this kind of how we are always granting industries and and destructive forces and not necessarily always regulating is maybe enough sometimes i mean that, i think that's a little bit that's happening with tourism to some degree in iceland yeah, even though it is yeah. coming better but you yeah know. yeah it's, it's so we're always kind of pretending like we live in this single opportunity yeah world like we did not have choices right. like we did not have 20 ways of of developing okay. so yeah so so dreamland is much more than just about aluminum and stuff it's mm. it was like a some kind of manifesto or something yeah it, it raised the consciousness i think that to even think about your homeland is more than just this yeah. little place where it could just be harnessed for opportunities for money yeah right? and, and also people called me and i avoided all kind of political rhetorics like left or right rhetorics right, or, yeah. or references to special political figures people called me and said, I really thought you were an asshole. But, <laughs> but then I read your book and you actually changed your my mind. <laughs> Wait, uh, why did they think you were an asshole? No, just because I was an environmentalist, you know. Ah, uh, okay, okay. It was maybe a conservative person or something okay. you know, that thought I was a leftist, stupid, you know, tree An hugger, agenda or tree, something tree pushing. But then okay. they read the book and they called me and they said, I'm sorry, uh, I thought you were just full of bullshit and... Uh, and uh, but I, then I read your book and uh, I see that this is a serious issue. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that's amazing. When you and can what reach... can I, and what can I do to help? Okay. You know, I have this company and uh, and uh, maybe we can support you in some way. So we created this strange alliance actually of tech people because the tech industry would be people similar to me, but they just went to engineering instead of literature. Mm-hmm. And, and they wanted these highlands, you know. Right. And they really believed that we could make some kind of companies here, you know, right. like, uh, you know, just start up. We have, like, the prosthetic limb company here. Mm-hmm. We have all sorts of possibilities of making high-tech right. and valuable stuff that is not depending on harnessing electricity that could power one million people you know right, that's what yeah. the smelters are right so one aluminum smelter uses energy like one million people right yeah. so the scale of all that stuff was so huge it was so nature intensive right for maybe 400 jobs wow. so so uh, 400 versus a million that's uh, yeah yeah it's a and yeah. and it's the scale that was so crazy and suddenly it just became like the prime need of a small town in iceland was 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 six hundred megawatts, which would be you know enough for a million people, and 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 th- that was all rationalized. You know, right. we need jobs and we need to you know. Yeah. That rhetoric gets thrown around a lot, and when people don't know the weight of it on yeah. their lives or yeah. on their environment, you know. Yeah, it's like people will argue for a coal factory right. because of two hundred jobs, while the damage of it is way beyond that. Right. So then there I'm stepping into economy, ecology. <laughs> 
energy policy and 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 uh, and and suddenly i'm like stuck with the torch of having mm. being like a specialist you know which i became of course from writing it right so i would be like furious reading the newspapers uh, because I could add up all the megawatts and it's <laughs> like this is so stupid this is so wrong right. this doesn't make any sense and and that was a bit frustrating because you have the torch mm-hmm. and the torch has super glue on it so you just don't hand that torch to somebody <laughs> right, else yeah. and then the torch blows, burns down while you have the super glue on it and uh, and so I kind of uh, almost had like a burnout or something you know okay. because uh, or maybe not a proper burnout just it's, it's just extremely exhausting to be a individual activist right of course i had lots of people around me but trying to coordinate everything yeah but but always being i think my body thought i was in a civil war or something so like always alert always on guard always responding to something because i'm sure you had a lot of people who were not very happy with you yeah and then of course you make people angry you know people that I used to love the blue planet, but now I can't read it for my children. <laughs> because <laughs> you're an evil man. <laughs> yeah. So, so, yeah. Uh, so, but it was it was still an experience, you know. Right. It was like a, which I would not have had if I had gone to Paris to drink <laughs> absinthe with the nihilists and the hookers. Like, like you know, like a like a like a real 19th century yeah. intellectual. <laughs> but I'm, I'm sure Iceland is glad that you didn't, right? So, but, the nature is certainly and, glad. And then, of course, after Dreamland, the economy collapsed. And yeah. one of the big players there was, of course, the publisher of Bonus Poetry. So, uh, so suddenly you're kind of observing lots of yeah. first-hand witness to lots of stuff. Fascinating. And are there other writers who are trying to either create their own area of activism or taking the torch about environmentalism. You know, that's what I'm curious about. In this current environment in the literary culture of Iceland, yeah, there are people are, using their voice? They're, they're using... Many are using their voices and have been kind of during the crash, economic crash, yeah. and, and they're writing articles or something. I might have gone maybe the furthest in this kind of... of do you think people were afraid of the backlash? I mean, it is can be severe. You have like certain yeah. parties that might come after. Yeah, and and uh, and they, I think they came after me. Yeah. And uh, there was this smear campaign or something mm. that was three years ago, but you know, it it was less than expected because when mm. I published it, I was actually just afraid. You know what what is behind the huge corporation? Like mm. when you're shaking a cage and you have a billion dollars at yeah. stake, you know, and those billion dollars depend on the national uh, will of handing those billion dollars to a corporation. Right. A human life or, or you know, something. I wasn't actually sure. Okay, wow. Because, of course, you've seen these examples. So your from... thoughts have just kind of gone to many different places about potential, you know. No, I just didn't know because they were they were harming people's mm. careers. Wow. You know, like, like I knew some uh, some uh, nature people with PhDs in the, in that the woman that made the report about Thursarver, mm-hmm. her report was manipulated, and she whistle blew on that mm-hmm. ma- manipulation, and she didn't get a job for many years. Wow! 
and she was from uh, with a PhD from Yale. That's you know? ridiculous. Yeah, so that's the situation I was stepping into at that time. Okay. Which is not as much the situation now. No. And yet, you ended up running for president of Iceland as well, right? Yes. Was this part of your your platform, in essence, right? Like well, I, well, it was kind of... It, there was a void. There was nobody actively running, or there were a few running, but uh, there was like a void. Mm-hmm. And many people that wanted this voice to be one step higher right. kind of uh, you know wanted to back me up and uh, and for the readers listeners then the president of Iceland is a strange figure mm-hmm. it's the not like pr- the president the, of the United the, States the prime minister is the main figure but right. the president is more like a figurehead like a figurehead or a super ambassador yeah like a super ambassador yeah Slash first lady. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 so it's, a, it's a really strange and badly defined head of state. Yeah. Uh, like a king, like the Scandinavian kings. Yeah. Not with any real power. power <laughs> but still lots of soft power. Yeah, and lots of influence. Lots sure. of influence, yeah. So I thought, okay, if this is a strange thing and Iceland is in, on the kind of front of global warming like we have all the oceans around us mm-hmm. and these oceans there are not many places in the world that have so much uh, that need to rely so much on the health of the oceans right so in the in the international climate conventions most nations you know the nation the ocean is just like something splashing on their beaches you right. know, not like a big industry or or something that they really care about you know, like uh, nations even without oceans. So the oceans were always like not in the agenda and uh, ocean acidification is is reaching a level we haven't seen for 30 yeah. million years. Mm-hmm. So I thought, okay, I'll run. And uh, we have an unfinished constitution that's a really cool work. Yep. And we and can, Sitting in a drawer somewhere. Sitting in a drawer somewhere so I could kind of get the best constitution guy from France and yeah. the best constitution guy from Harvard and the best constitution guys from Africa and Australia yeah. to come and uh, build kind of a fence of trust around it, you know, either criticize it right. and and uh, and if not, then there would be a fence of trust created okay. and then we could maybe implement it and then we have the opportunity of making a national park yeah. in the Highlands in the Highlands yeah. Yeah. and and you could get the best national park guys and girls and uh, built kind of a fence around that issue and then like uh, the glaciers are melting and the oceans are are changing and and just basically all water on the planet is is going through transition and you could maybe ask what do you call it uh, accelerate change by just using your voice yeah absolutely without having sheer legislational power you could just make things happen more yeah. quickly and i think that's a really cool thing to think of you as you know you had been this teenager slash 20 year old something who was writing poetry and then you kind of evolved in your thinking about iceland and what it means to you and how precious it is right and then it's kind of evolved your work and then it also helped to evolve your community right so i feel like the writer in iceland or at least the literature in iceland has the potential for a really powerful impact because it's a small community yeah. and everyone is 
in a way, like I think people want to have these things, but at the same time, being able to reach them. So yeah. the fact that you were able to reach a conservative or conservatives, many of yeah. them, and they originally thought were well, like you just you know liberal hippy dippy, like yeah. you said, you yeah. know, hugging trees, right? And it's like, oh wait, but he has a really good point. Yeah. So the written word, because this is not the case everywhere. There are no, many no. places where it's not people aren't as into literature or they're not paying attention to it, you know? And so the impact ends up being much, uh, maybe the, just the intellectual community. Whereas yeah, exactly. Say, yeah. It's just like an inner dialogue in the university. Or right, exactly. Yeah. So yeah. this goes beyond just yeah. scholars. It yeah. actually real people yeah. were just everyday working individuals yeah. who wanted I was the actually, and this was in themselves. 2006 when this came out. And I was, I was actually quite astonished that yeah, I, I wasn't sure I could wish for such a success, you mm. know, like, like I didn't know if the book was actually still with these abilities. Right. And, and what is good with the book is it's like a, like when you're installing something like a new idea, right. it doesn't happen through one single article. Right. It doesn't happen through a, even a long read article. It goes through a, it, it goes through a process of 300 pages mm -hmm. or 200 pages. Of, of of layers of of ideas and that are you can lay upon the idea that you can lay upon the idea and then f finally you have like a a new paradigm set that you right. can but you you don't get that through the three minute news slot or <laughs> or the two minute fragment of you know right. so that's what I'm actually doing now okay. is, is a is a new book that is kind of like Dreamland which would you like to talk about that. Yes, yeah, so the next book that is coming out is The Casket of Time. Mm -hmm. That's coming out in America. Or in English. World English. This is the Kali. It's, it's a bit ugly. <laughs> uh, it will be more beautiful when it... He's actually, for everyone who's listening, he's, he's holding the book in his hands. Yeah. <laughs> like, just flipping through it at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> so, so The Casket of Time is about a king that has conquered the world. And it's kind of inspired by going through boring times you know like you probably wish you could skip the trump years you know imagine yes. imagine um, you're spending oh you're spending four years of your life you know your prime age mm -hmm. <laughs> and you have to serve that through trump years you know like and i'm sure a lot of people can relate to that right now yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i'm not going to be too political but yeah okay. so so in this book the king has conquered the world okay and he thinks it's really unfair that he doesn't get more time mm. than other people. He won't have time to sleep in all his castles, and he would have to drink a hundred bottles of, of wine every day to just come close to you know, his cellar. And, yeah. and this beautiful princess, she will just grow old and die like she wasn't more worth more than anything in the world. Mm. Just like a worthless peasant, she'll just, you know, die randomly like you know, all the stupid people in the world oh, that's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so so he announces that anyone that can give him more time mm -hmm. will uh, will get half his kingdom because okay. because it will vanish anyway it was he has a big existential crisis uh, so of course nobody can help him but then some dwarves come mm. with something that looks like a glass casket but it's not woven with glass, it's woven with spider silk. Mm -hmm. And it's so densely woven that time cannot penetrate the walls. So when he closes the casket and opens a week later, the princess feels like only a second past. 
so we can remove all the unimportant moments from our life. Mm. You know, like you spend one-seventh of your life on Mondays. This <laughs> is really terrible, you know. Like when you're old, so only Fridays. <laughs> yeah, like when you're old, you're like, oh, where did my life go? Like, oh, yeah, like Mondays was like... 12 years, <laughs> you know, how, how, and Trump years, four years, oh, November's, uh, November's uh, 10 years, uh, February's, so in the end... And in Iceland, November's and February's are very significant, I feel like, so yes. that's why he's saying that. In other parts of the world, it might be different. Yes, so, so, uh, so in the end, you only had like three months that were really worth living. <laughs> yeah, like, like uh, so he can give the princess only the days that really count. Okay. And this works well to begin with. It begins becomes a bit strange. Yeah. And she becomes more and more precious and uh, valuable and uh, and preserved. And, yes, and and just the, and just basically she only maybe comes out a few days a year or something. And uh, and then in the end it takes 2 years to prepare the perfect day that runs seamlessly from morning to evening yeah. with butterflies and running giraffes and and bull cats and dancing <laughs> and you know so like a perfect day mm-hmm. and uh, and then one day a boy breaks into the castle and he's going to steal her necklace mm. and she finds out that she's been 20 years in the casket the king has gone mad the kingdom is crumbling and he's not going to open until everything is perfect again. Oh, no. So she makes a deal with the boy that he should come on every full moon, open up, and uh, tell her what's happening. <laughs> so give someone her, who came her, to actually give her a contact to steal uh, from her has become her informant. Yeah, well, she yeah she she makes she uh, takes control of the situation. Okay. And, Interesting. Uh, that is fascinating. Okay, don't don't tell me more. No, I think we've already given so, so, uh, a good overview. So this is kind of a story for uh, children and. Uh, Ex-children also. <laughs> <laughs> more um, aged children. Yeah, <laughs> former will. children. Yeah, so I, was, children. I was like a child for 12 years, so I almost have a PhD in being a child. <laughs> <laughs> so. But you still have this ability to tap into yeah. your imagination in a way that's childlike, but not childish, right? It's because you're weaving together stories that can span, you know, like you were saying, a nine-year-old could read this, but also a person in their 30s, 50s, 70s, mm-hmm. and still get the essence of the story and then have maybe deeper levels according yeah, to their... Yeah, I hope that. that. My idea is that a child will read the book and then maybe come back to it mm-hmm. later. Mm-hmm. Like and a wrinkle in time type of effect yeah, for some people. Yeah, and feel like the author was actually respecting <laughs> that person yeah. by having uh, even... Instead of being like uh, disappointed when you read your children's favorites later on in mm-hmm. life, you become like surprised. Like this author was actually uh, showing me more respect than I expected. Right. Oh. So nice. that's kind of the idea. Okay. And for people that want to get like jump into Icelandic literature, I'm just gonna like move to this other topic again. Yeah. Where do you suggest they start? So someone who's like interested in Iceland, they would love to kind of just delve into Icelandic literature, but they're a little overwhelmed by the amount of choices, because there's quite a lot out there. Yeah. Where would, where do you suggest they start? You can start poetry, children's books, sci-fi, like, no, I'm not going to suggest my book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, where should they start? 
Because mm. you were talking about mythology and folklore yeah. and the sagas. You know, so you know, I would maybe you know you could start with independent people mm. by Helto Laxness. Yeah. It might be advanced, but uh, I'm not sure if I want to suggest the crime novels. I don't like that. You have to kill something to make a story. <laughs> to be entertained. <laughs> okay. I'm more vegan in that way. Yeah. Well, <laughs> so, I'm vegan in real life, so that's nice. <laughs> so, so, uh, Ava, mm. she is quite good. Uh, she's a Sean. Mm-hmm. He makes poet, uh, yeah. v- Moonstone, and uh, his books are very good. Some of them are actually quite short, but mm. they're very. Very good. I would maybe check out Christine Omerstotter. Okay. She made a book called Reindeer Wood or something like that in translation. Yeah. Um, there is some poetry also by Christine Omerstotter. And then, of course, I would try Niels Saga. Mm-hmm. And I would try to read the Edda. Maybe... Uh, difficult to go through the whole Edda but uh, but some of the mythology maybe you'll have to start with Neil Gaiman North's <laughs> mythology I've actually I've read that before yeah. you go into as a primer basically if you go to the primal yeah. literature yeah okay but I often like primal things because you just get from one sentence sentence you get the, like it's so dense yeah you get like a whole world from it. do you feel like the translations of the sagas are enough to give people a similar feeling that you get when you're reading Icelandic and I, in I, Icelandic. I have actually not read the sagas in okay, okay. So, so I'm not sure yeah and, and uh, hopefully yeah I hope so but at least they've used it from Game of Thrones and stuff yeah like true so, <laughs> so, uh, so I think Niall's saga might be good Haldor Laxness what are your favorite pieces of Icelandic literature and you can name your own if you... Yeah, know. I was naming kind of my own yeah, favorites. Yeah. So, this so was, these are your favorites that you recommend to others? Yes, okay, yes. Great. So, so uh, because I I can't... No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I can't dumb down my taste. No, <laughs> no, I, no I, can't, I can't like think of anything of easy reading or, you know, yeah. like... No, no, like uh, but I, I mean, Icelandic life is not easy, right? So let's just keep it real. So... so Classic pieces of literature. No, so I just would say that uh, Halto Laxness, mm-hmm. Independent People, yeah. Njols, uh, and some of the newer writers. Okay. Like, uh, I would try, yeah, Sjorn, for example. Yeah, okay. I, met, I went to a flower shop in Manhattan. Okay. And, or no, a perfumes, perfumery. And there, uh, the woman that was serving the perfumes was like a big Sjorn fan. Really? Yeah. Mm. So it was, it was, that was cool. Iceland is, has its uh, tentacles in every part of the world, I think. Yeah. And, and actually, in English, it's actually, if you speak German or French, then you can even get a richer insight mm, into, okay. because there, in Germany, you actually have sometimes 10, 15 of the main novels of each year being translated. Okay. Well, like, I think my book is the only children's book uh, translated to English since, I think, The Blue Planet was translated <laughs> to English. Okay. Uh, that is in, uh, in, as a chapter book okay. on the market in the U.S. 
I don't think any other children's book has been published right. in the US. Yeah, so so my two children's books are the only Icelandic children's right. books. So you hear that, Icelandic writers, maybe it's your <laughs> yeah. chance to take it up. But I think that's, you know, it's not a bad thing, obviously, but I think there's potential, of course, for other people to be able to put their spin on children's books and have yeah. them out there if they think that's necessary. But, yeah. Yeah, but, it's, um, but I, I would just... Uh, Check out what's in the local library. So we have crime. We have, well, of course, I could recommend a crime novel by Arnaldur or Issa. Mm-hmm. And Issa is actually, is actually quite, uh, she's considered a crime novelist, but she's more a thriller that is more like, a, she could have ghosts and stuff in her, okay. in her book. So, so she could come closer to a Stephen King thing. Okay. Which and, Stephen uh, King is, can be pretty wild like out there yeah and brutal yeah <laughs> so. yeah so she could be very brutal yeah. Right? yeah i just i just have a temporary uh, no i would i would say uh the crime novels are also a good introduction yeah okay great so my final question for you is what is your favorite icelandic word or phrase and you can have multiple uh, i think there was a competition once about the most beautiful word in icelandic mm-hmm. That was probably Ljósmóðir, mm-hmm. it's the, what do you call it in English? It's, it's a, a um, midwife. Midwife, yeah. yeah. I think that, it's, that, it, that's not a good, <laughs> that's not a good English name. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a, it's a midwife, basically. So it's midwife like sounds, the like, who, uh, sounds like your second wife. Yeah, I know, it's, it's unfortunate, <laughs> but it's the one who assists you, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So Ljósmóðir, it means uh, the light mother, yes. light mother. It's beautiful yeah, and Icelandic. Yeah. Because so, of, I'm guessing the baby's coming out and seeing the light. Is that why? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, or it's just, yeah. I'm not not sure actually why she's mm-hmm. called the light mother, but it's a it's a it's also a bit almost like a mythological word. Yeah, it's like it's, a, I think that is quite beautiful. There is uh, also the ugliest word that I had in um in a previous interview with like this brewmaster in Iceland, and I think it was like nipple. Yeah, okay, yeah, 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 exactly. Because it's like yeah. a. A mole or something really yeah, terrible. Yeah, 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 <laughs> it's yeah, like, so why? why? It's like a wart. Do? Yeah, it's a wart. It's like a sword wart. Oh, <laughs> a sword wart. So, so gair is, a, is an old word for a sword <laughs> and a wart. Yeah, so it's, it's a, a sword wart. <laughs> it's like, it's like, like an archaic can, name for a sword. Yeah, yeah. it's like you can make so midwife sound really so, appealing so, in Icelandic, so, so but can, not nipple. <laughs> so you can imagine writing erotic, erotic literature oh, and then he uh, touches her. Sword wise. <laughs> it's not like and, uh, lovely. Anyway, <laughs> no, my favorite word. It's hard to say. Maybe the word for a bird, himbreme. 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 Yeah. Okay. It's. I've always been fond of that word. What does it translate to? Yeah. Well, it's difficult. It's himbreme. It's it's a it's the it's the great northern diver. Himbreme. 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 I just think though it sounds funny, and it sounds a bit like himin, which is sky in Iceland. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, but still, you don't really know what it means. So I'll just say himbreme. Himbreme. Yeah. Oh, great. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.